In a previous podcast episode, I talked about the things that you can do as an individual to reduce the effects of climate change. Now, there are some big things that you can do that are really important, but the truth is we really need corporations and governments to act for major changes to happen. So when Lavinia Das reached out to me to talk about how corporations perceive climate change and some of the creative solutions that they are working towards to offset carbon emissions, I was all ears and invited her to become a guest on the podcast. So Lavinia is a marketing professional and she lives in the UK. So in this podcast episode, we talk about marketing for conservation in addition to the way that the corporate world thinks about climate change. And if you've never listened to this podcast before, even though I'm a scientist, I think that science can only really take us so far and that so many of the solutions are really about getting people to change their behavior, which of course involves a scientific solution, but marketers have been doing this for a long time. They have been working on getting people to change their behaviors, usually to buy a product. So I was so interested to talk to Lavinia about some of the things that we as scientists can do to be able to try to convince people or inspire people to take more action towards climate change and other conservation efforts. Because she lives in the UK, we also got to talk about some urban foxes living in London and a bunch of other things, including plastics and other environmental problems. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Lavinia. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Hello, Lavania. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. Excited to be here. Excited to connect with you as well uh, over the long distance. Yeah, absolutely. It's so great to have somebody from the business world, actually, not not a scientist. And it's so interesting to hear your perspective. So can you give um, our audience a little bit of a background about yourself and maybe how you got to reach out to me about the podcast? Yeah, so I'm Lavinia Das. I live and work in London. And currently I work at BP Launchpad. And that's a separate company from BP. But essentially we invest in renewable energy firms or companies that will help move the world towards net zero. So we, we don't have any you know, direct investments into renewable energy that way, but about the technology that will help us move to net zero and you know, move towards this whole idea of reimagining energy for the people and the planet and previously like when I was younger I was very much into conservation so I grew up into I grew up in India and in a a hill station called the Nilgris where in those days you had tigers and leopards and uh, things roaming around the place I don't think so anymore (laughs) to be honest but probably leopards uh, you probably have leopards 
there there were tigers actually as well like i remember like going out with the conservation group and you know we, we would check for paw prints and scat and things like mm-hmm. that and you know it's as a kid you think it's really fun as an adult i'm like oh, oh no i <laughs> what was my mom thinking sending me out there in the wild <laughs> in an open air jeep as well <laughs> where I could just be picked off by a tiger at any point in time <laughs> No, that's okay. Uh, yeah, that's what I, I went to do a tiger safari in 2014. And yeah, we were in the open air Jeeps. I don't think, I don't think they care much. They're like, you're in the Jeep, you're fine. But yeah, leopards are, are very resilient and, and there's actually leopards living in Mumbai, India. So you probably oh, have yes. them, them still where you are, but sorry, go ahead. Tell us more about your background. Yeah. They're open leopards, isn't there? Aren't there? Like, so that's, mm-hmm. that's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So like I have a background in filmmaking and marketing, two very interesting <laughs> points there. And I, I've worked previously in telecommunications, worked in software as a service. This is my first venture into renewable energy. But also I volunteer as a trustee of the board at the RSPCA in North London. And it's very interesting how much how we deal with foxes and mm-hmm. hedgehogs and little moles and things like that on a regular basis in London. And to be honest, the first time I moved to London and I saw a fox, you know, in the street eating garbage, of course, as they do here, I was really shocked. I was like, oh my God, I had this, you know, amazing moment. Like, oh my God, it's so pretty. It's so beautiful. And now I'm a little scared because they're very, they're very friendly, Stephanie. This is the problem. So if you're walking along, they'll try and walk along with you. And initially I thought it was, it was, they liked my dog. Now my dog has been dead for a few years, but they still walk along with us. And I'm just like, you, you realize, you know, we're, we're not, it's not safe for either one of us. If you walk along with me, right. Must be so well fed there. Is that, is that the reason why they're so tame? Is that people feed them regularly? Because we have the same foxes here. We have red foxes here. And I mean, they're definitely in, more urban and suburban areas. Although here in Raleigh, we have a lot more gray foxes and red foxes, but they're not, they're not like tame. Like they are in the UK. They seem to like almost go inside people's homes and stuff there. I I actually saw a video of somebody sitting out at a pub here in London and a fox came up and had a cuddle with him essentially. And the thing is that most foxes here, they'll look at you, they'll keep their distance like about a meter or two. So it's not so bad. But the point is that they just rummage through your garbage, you know, so they get into the garbage bins, they've learned how to overturn the garbage bins and really get in and find Mm -hmm. food. And that's why they're well fed. And there's so many parks and areas where they can burrow in and where they can hibernate that there's enough space for them rather they think there's enough space and uh, they have enough you know litters every year and it's it's interesting it's I, I think the problem that we have here in London is the fences sometimes mm-hmm. they can get their little paws all caught in them and then and then get tangled yeah. up and it's a lot of distress and that's the number one call that our RSPC officers have to attend to be honest when it comes to foxes is that they get tangled up in one of these mesh fences and the poor animals in distress and most of the time it is a happy story that you know they've they're fine they've got into a bit of a panic and the interesting thing is that you know when I talk to our animal collection officers they say when we go there they they understand that we're helping them so they actually just calm down 
a bit. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. Do you, do you have the same experience with other animals? Like, no, cats hate us sometimes. It's like, <laughs> even if it's a house cat that's gotten lost and or up a tree, they'll scratch you. But the, the, the fox is somehow more friendly. Huh. That's interesting. You're very tame there. So, so you work with businesses to make them more work towards net zero. So my company in, invests in businesses that okay. um, have technology that can make things more net zero, like can make everything. So like whether it's um, optimizing wind farms, that's one mm-hmm. of the companies we've invested in when it comes to predictive analysis. And you think that, you know, data is, doesn't necessarily have a direct correlation with net zero, but in, in terms of their product, it does. And same with other products that rely on fiber optic sensing that can actually help with traffic loads on busy streets and you know this whole smart city enablement around the world so it's not just about you know how traffic moves but it's also about the pollution mm-hmm. as well because if you have you know, these heavy polluting vehicles standing at traffic lights that's when they pollute the most because the, mm-hmm. the point is that you know when you're idling that's when you have the most amount of exhaust and bad chemicals getting out into the air and just settling in these neighborhoods so there's a lot of technologies that the company we invest the companies we invest in work on and all of this adds to net zero and my job is to advise on the marketing as well and how to go to market so to speak how to mark, build brand awareness how to make sure that whole customer journey is working so when you say marketing you're talking about like advertising to the consumers that these companies are doing good things for the environment is that what you mean so marketing is a lot of things and yeah. I, 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 I'm literally the expansion from the beginning so when you know like you said advertising or if it's posts on LinkedIn you know that or you're making sure mm-hmm. the website is looking good all the way to the end which is essentially people referring us on and part of the buying cycle and it's a bit complicated I think you know when as a if you're not from marketing you think that marketing is quite fancy and I used to not be from marketing before mm-hmm. I, I did my MBA and I was like, yeah, it is advertising. It's this, it's that. But it actually is a lot of data analysis uh, about your audience. It's about really mm-hmm. understanding what are they after. It's toning down or toning up your messages, depending on what they're looking for. Because, you know, there's this great quote that w- a lot of us are not sure if it's true, but it kind of sums up what, you know, about catering to your market is about. And sometimes you have to, you have to just go ahead with it. Otherwise it's like what Henry Ford, again, like I said, allegedly said is that if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse instead mm-hmm. of a car. And that's the problem I think with, when it comes to technologies that will help us get to net zero, that a lot of people don't know what is it they're looking for. They know that they want to get to net zero, but they don't know what is it, what, what will help them get there. Can you talk about what what net zero is for people who don't know and maybe some of those technologies that will help companies get there? Yeah. So net zero is essentially that we don't add to the carbon dioxide uh, pollution and we don't add, essentially we, let me start that again. Sorry. It's okay. (laughs) There's a better way of saying this. So net zero essentially is not having a carbon footprint and continuing on with your day-to-day business 
uh, as usual. Now, the problem with net zero, there's two ways of doing this, is that you can make sure that your processes are very clean and you therefore are not really polluting. And the mm -hmm. other side is carbon offsets. So that's what a lot of airline companies are looking into, into carbon offsets. So that's either making sure that forests are conserved and they continue on like that. So the idea is that whoever owns the forest is already getting money for the trees that are there. So they won't, you know, there's no need for them to profit off of the wood or mm -hmm. felling the trees or planting new forests. So there's two options in that. And uh, a lot of the companies that we work with deal with uh, cleaning up the current processes. And part of that, so I'll take an example for one of our companies called Fortech, and they do fiber optic sensing. So essentially, mm -hmm. you know, all of the fiber optic cables that are laid everywhere in every city that give us the internet that are around a lot of places, they use what's already there in that infrastructure, connect it up to their little box and send like a few signals. And from those signals, they can actually figure out based on the vibrations they get back, you know, are there heavy vehicles in the area? Is like, or they can do something with perimeter security as well, instead of having cameras too. And, or like in the case, which is one of the big polluting factors when it comes to current energy sources is pipeline leaks. So if a pipeline leaks right now, people normally tend to find it after, you know, three, four days. And that's because somebody's walking past or their somebody's land is adjacent to where the pipeline is. And of course they're smelling the fuel or the gas that's being transported. And this technology, what it can do is pinpoint with very high precision where the leak is essentially and that it can start with a single drop and then people can get notified and the problem that people normally have is that you have this big area of the pipeline that can be a kilometer long and you've got to find a leak that is most probably just giving out like a few drops a minute but a few drops a minute is a lot over two or three days yeah and then by the time you find that so that's one of the technologies that I work with. And it's very interesting because that means that, the, and look, the problem is when it comes to our dependency on oil is that it's not just as a fuel, like anything to do with plastics has to do with oil. And Siri has decided to chime in as well. Good old Siri. So essentially like our dependence on oil is not going to go away for at least another decade. And that's until we find alternative fuels. That's until uh, we convince people that we can't use current plastics as it is. Because right now, it's cheaper to produce new plastics than it is to recycle yeah. old plastics. And until we can get to, and there's some great technology out there where, you know, people have been inventing plastics that essentially decompose. Yes, that's the word. Decompose <laughs> in a few weeks. And that's mm -hmm. what we, we need, isn't it? Or maybe if they decompose in a year, that would still be much better than what we currently have. But right now, uh, there's so many things that are dependent on these plastics being made. And part of it right now, is, as it's seen during the COVID crisis, is PPE. And mm -hmm. we're already seeing that level of pollution going back into the oceans. We're seeing masks you know, flowing back in. Yeah. And until we move away from that, you know, we have to make sure that every, all these processes around oil also become greener. And one of the other companies we invest in, like I said, did they do predictive anal analysis for wind farms and particularly wind turbines. 
And one of the things they pride themselves on is they can predict when a wind turbine is going to fail a few months ahead of when it does, which means that the output of the wind farm uh, can be measured. They, you can know when you have to put some, when some things have to go offline for repair, and mm -hmm. you can make sure that you repair a whole bunch at the same time. And one of the good health and safety things that have come out of this and as an assessment is that people know what the failure is gonna be. So they already know what parts to order and they mm -hmm. only go out once. Otherwise before it would be that, oh, it failed. We had to go out multiple times, find out what is the problem, come back, get what's um, available, go out there, realize it doesn't fit, come back again, <laughs> you know, like a typical DIY project that goes on and on forever. Isn't it? I think anybody um, who does DIY at home knows what's, what happens, isn't it? You, you, you think, okay, I'm just going to fix the door on this kitchen cabinet mm -hmm. and the entire kitchen falls apart. And that's what it used to be, to be honest. And that's how it, it can get to on, on wind farms. But, you know, with this technology, the idea is that, okay, you just go out once. And that means that your fuel is, consumption is lowered, you're, you're not polluting, you're not going and disturbing the environment as much because, you know, the, like wind farms aren't in urban areas where people are frequent the areas as much. So it's also that you're not disturbing any of the wildlife as much as well. Like it's mm -hmm. not big crews that are needed for this. You can go out and do this in a nice, relaxed way and come back and that's it finished and that's the point it's like if you have more greener processes the it, it'll actually better this entire you know journey towards net zero and just going back to what you said about plastics is the reason why why we don't go for the um, biodegradable plastics is it just cost i mean right now with the market it literally is cost that's mm -hmm. the sad part it is so easy to get to, to make these plastics and it's the Let's put it like this. The pr manufacturing process has been fine-tuned massively. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to do that. And especially now with the demand, especially in first world countries with, uh, for COVID um, restrictions, all these things, everybody wanted their food in plastics, isn't it? Because yeah. then mm -hmm. uh, they felt that it was safer. I don't know. Uh, personally, I don't see the difference there. It's but that that you know that added to this demand, and you know a lot of companies here. Like I can tell you personally, like when we used to get our deliveries from the supermarket, we used to say no plastic bags, please, because over here they do have that plastic bag, you know, mm -hmm. extra charge, and that's great. I think that's a good deterrent, but it's quite low. Let's face it; it's it's just about five p, which is about seven cents, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not. It, it, it's not much for a plastic bag if you really need it. So initially, like before COVID, as a consumer, I wasn't getting that much plastic. And then because of COVID, for the safety of their staff delivering, yeah. and they had to switch back to plastic bags. And at one point, we were inundated. We were like, okay, you know, every household, you have the plastic bag that has all the plastic bags. And we we're like, okay, we need three of these. <laughs> what are we going to do with this? You know, like slowly, like segregated them. This is for garbage. This is for gym shoes. This is for <laughs> created a whole system to, on how to use this. And so just throwing them out, you know, away without using them at all. And the same thing with takeaways as well. It just went yeah. back to uh, the old processes, isn't it? And this is the problem. Unfortunately, when price is the problem and a lot of people don't have the luxury of uh, having that extended economy to be able to afford something a little better, 
it's and the problem again with manufacturing is if you produce something expensive the cost goes back to the consumer mm-hmm. and if and a lot of people cannot be bothered with that when they're trying to you know find their next paycheck so to speak right. trying to pay their next rent check trying to pay the next uh, bill for water or electricity and i think this is the problem unfortunately with you know a lot of conservation a lot of charities as well that we always talk about what the bad stuff that will happen and you know for, for people that where you, you realize yes this is bad you, you know you can guilt a lot of people but a lot of people on that basic survival style right. like, i need to i need to feed my family i need to make sure my bills are paid i need to be able to live i need to be able to work i need to be able to eat so exactly. uh, the problem is like and this is, this is not for just uh, conservation efforts, charities as well. It's always the uh, doom and gloom news. Mm-hmm. And from a marketing perspective, I really feel that it would be interesting to move in a slightly different direction, almost, and b- bring up alternatives that, hey, without even changing your budget or your lifestyle, this is what you can do to help the planet. And this is the future your children can have but not talk about what they can't have because mm-hmm. at this point a lot of people like i said especially i mean like i'm speaking for people here in the uk rather my observation for people in the uk i'm not the spokesperson for the uk i don't know why i said that that was very strange <laughs> self appointed like the, the thing is a lot of people went on furlough and a lot of people ended up losing their jobs so that's that's the problem when you when you, when you don't have money and you just have to get whatever's there how much do you really care about the environment when you're talk, thinking about your own survival? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I want to return to marketing, but just quickly on the plastic bag, since we're on the subject, it's even more complicated than people think. I remember a year or so ago, I read an article, I'm pretty sure it was in NPR or the New York Times about how paper bags actually have higher carbon emissions. And because in the United States, some places were doing plastic bag bans. So they were comparing it like that. But then also people use plastic bags like like you're talking about in your home or a lot of people, they use it like to scoop kitty litter. So people were actually just going online and buying plastic bags. And then that, that ended up also being worse because I guess the plastic bags that they were buying online were thicker and heavier. So mm-hmm. it was actually not changing plastic consumption. So mm-hmm. it's just... Yeah, like you think you're doing one thing good and then there's all these different nuances that, that you don't take into account for. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that or any other additional oh, yeah. information? Oh, I, 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 I am one of these uh, anti-plastic warrior people. If you ask me to complain about it, I will <laughs> sign every petition possible. Look, the problem is, like I said, it starts with money, isn't it? Yeah. It's cheap to manufacture and it's part of our everyday life now that you throw out your garbage in a plastic bag. And a lot mm-hmm. of, like in the UK, a lot of councils will not take your garbage unless it's in a plastic bag as well. Mm. It can be, it has to be put in the correct bin, but guess what? It's in the plastic bag. They right. do have stuff for recycling leftover food and things like that. But then, you know, it's, it's also how people use it. If you're in a flat, you can't have a bin with uh, rotting food in your flat. Right. Uh, it's going to attract rats, isn't it? But the whole point that I'm trying to get to is that it's it's not on the consumer. And I think this is a problem that started, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, where, you know, people started advertising and just recycle the bottle 
and mm-hmm. push the blame onto the consumer. This is all about governments. And the problem is that these companies that create plastics or, you know, drill for oil or whatever it is, they're working within government guidelines as it stands right now. Mm-hmm. What happens if you change the government guidelines? And that's the difference. And, that, and then it becomes a thing of compliance as well, mm-hmm. because there's two things, isn't it? There's ethics about what you, sh- you know, what you should do, what is really right. And then there's compliance, isn't it? So you're complying with the law and finding right. loopholes in the law is still complying with the law, isn't it? Yes. That's the problem, unfortunately. So you actually have to have governments creating airtight laws about plastics or having proper, you know, how, I mean, essentially having airtight laws about plastics or having proper ways to punish people for not, you know, keeping in line right. with, uh, with this, because it's not just about manufacture, it's also about disposal. And, uh, you know, there are these massive recycling plants that can only handle like so much plastic. And at the same time, like I said, it's it's cheaper to manufacture new plastics compared to recycled plastics. And right now, there are all these lovely, you know, cleanup efforts going on in the oceans and, you know, not not at the scale that we need, but it's out there. There are, you know, these I, I saw this great article about this yacht that essentially, you know, picks up plastic as it moves through the Pacific and, you know, essentially cleaning up the ocean that way. And that's great. But then what do you do with that plastic afterwards? You know, there's no yeah. point if you if it comes back and you, you we put it into a dump. It's still just going to sit there for the next couple of thousand years before it, it decomposes. So it has to start with the government saying, no, this is enough. We can't have this. And mm-hmm. it's the same. And the problem, as you're seeing it, and I think the, the, the U.S. saw it the most with your previous president, it's also the same thing with, you know, green energy, that he went to all the places that had coal mines and people wanted to go back to their old ways of living have jobs Mm -hmm. and he really talked to like it was very interesting I felt he talked to the people there who who felt they had no hope but the problem is if you're a government that just panders to your people instead of giving them the option that hey with with free retraining you can we can build renewable energy plants right yeah where you are get your jobs back but they they just went back to coal because that's the other thing it's it's how people where people feel comfortable as well so like for us now we're comfortable with plastics being around we're comfortable having the you know plastic bag for garbage so what happens next that's and with this is the problem with governments and politicians it's all a it, it's a it's a popularity contest isn't it at the end and it's for every country and how, how do we get them to be very tough on this? And that's, I, that's, I, that's the only way I think we can stop this mass manufacture of new plastics and therefore the dependence on oil as well. Yeah, absolutely. It all starts with voting on my, I have a climate change blog, like the biggest things you can do. And number one is, is voting in every single election because all these things matter. And yeah, I still always ask for paper because like the, the plastic, it never decomposes. It just breaks down. And like you said, it leaches into the environment. And I, I read a study that said like we're eating like a credit card's worth of plastic every single week, I think it was. And and getting out of the ocean is good because a lot of wildlife gets tangled with it. So having it buried is better, but you're right. It still leaches into the environment. 
So, so you are in marketing, which I'm so interested in because scientists, we like focus so much on the data and we think, oh, all we need is a study to show X and then people will change their behavior. But the world doesn't work that way. People don't work that way. So what are some lessons from marketing that scientists can take? Or like, what do you think that we as conservationists or not even scientists, but like, what should we do with marketing? Like you mentioned that we should be saying to people, like, here's what you can have, not here's what's going to get taken away. Do you have like specific examples of this or other examples you could could give us to work with like so like i always say the best campaigns are the ones that get you to aspire to something mm-hmm. to aspire to do anything and i'll i'll actually i'll, I'll go off on a slight tangent here please bring me back in uh, in a few minutes <laughs> okay so like there's this lovely book called the gendered brain and and i forgot the name of the author right now anyway great book and one of the things she talks about is how certain studies who, that had left out female participants mm. in these studies or actually did not have did not actually accurately report their data and did not have a control group there's certain essentially studies that would not pass peer review were picked up by the press and were pushed out into the public because they had a snazzy headline mm-hmm. and i think this is the the uh, this is the problem that all mar- marketing people right now have is that it's the competition for eyeballs and the the more controversial a headline is the better and especially for journalists unfortunately because it used to be that you had your editor that you had to go through stuff and you had integrity as a as a journalist and you had integrity as a newspaper and there still are those publications out there but most of them are behind a paywall so you have the wall street journal you have the new york times you have you know the 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 times here in the uk most are behind a paywall and what's free it's you know the stuff like breitbart it's the stuff like the daily mail here in the uk that you know they'll bury the truth in two sentences of a 800 word article but the headline is so inflammatory either like with you know hate speech or saying that you know climate change does not exist and beautiful imaginary things like that but mm-hmm. the the point is like you know they take a single line from somewhere and blow it up and it's it's for sensationalism and i think this is something that one scientist should be just careful of and maybe you know just like the problem is when something starts there's momentum especially with these big publications because there's a core problem amongst all of this people don't read i know it's the most ridiculous thing for me to say but <laughs> it's, it's so true it is it is true like people read a headline and feel they know everything about that topic or they read the beginning and they read the end and yeah. the funny part is i work a lot in content where i write stuff and i keep telling people people don't read and i seem to be putting myself out of a job sometimes but this is the problem when you're marketing stuff you have to come up with that great headline and in, and on the scientific community you know when you when you write an article it's very fact based your headline is 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 not attention grabbing as well it's it's about and it, it it states a fact this is a study about this this and this and we compare that that and that and this is my thesis you know and this is what i'm mm-hmm. going to what i'm going to test isn't it and that you know that's great to have when you're doing your peer review but when you're self promoting your own articles you know come up with that snazzy headline like this is what i found that you know mm-hmm. people who have 10 seconds to read what you've done to read your research 
that in those 10 seconds, they understand the breakthrough that you've um, had, uh, so to speak. So that's one side of it. And I think the other side also, which, which I find very interesting is that there's, why, why don't scientists, like as a community rather, uh, the scientific community as a whole, you know, band together and say things against media that misquote articles? Uh, because it's always done very low key, but it's never uh, done out in public. It's just, you know, if you read an article, you'll figure out, hey, this wasn't, this didn't actually pass the peer review, but it never, the article never gets taken down as well. So yeah, I think a few things of, like that. Sorry. No, it's okay. Sorry, I interrupted you. I, I think it's just because we don't have the power or like you were saying, like things get momentum and they get taken away from us. Like I was just thinking recently about the, the Seaspiracy movie. Have you seen that? The doc- I, I actually still haven't seen it, but I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit scared to see it because I know I'm going to start crying at some point. <laughs> I know. But the message, the whole message of the film is to not eat seafood and all of my friends who are marine biologists or people I don't know who are marine biologists and people who were in the film were upset about how they were portrayed in the film because they, I don't edited things or misconstrued things. And in reality, like there is sustainable fishery operations and that's really the way to move forward because if you just end all fishing, you know, people are going to lose their livelihoods and it's not necessarily that all these, these populations will recover. But so I did see people speaking out about that, but I guess you're right. Like it's like, they either don't have the power or they don't have the ability to, to write those snazzy headlines. And actually I saw a study recently that, that said, that just in terms of scientists, like citing other publications, ones that had more jargon in them were cited less frequently. So even like that is something that scientists can do, even if they don't have the ability to come up with a clickbaity title, they can at least write in plain language and stop using all of these like jargony terms that only apply to your field. I mean, sometimes I read a, a paper title and I'm like, what are they saying? <laughs> Like, what does this mean? And yeah, I can figure it out. But it's like, why didn't you just say it the easy way? And to be honest, it's not just the scientific community that does this. Even the tech community does this a lot. Yeah. And let's face it, tech is everywhere. And this is normally part of the marketing person's job is to simplify the tech language. Mm -hmm. Because the people who buy technology aren't the people who use it. Mm -hmm. This is the problem. And I think this is the same thing with like scientific articles. It's like the people who are most interested in that end, but are not going to read it because they they feel they don't have that, you know, scientific knowledge. And I'm just going to get back to one point that you said Mm -hmm. that I thought was very interesting. It's about power of your voice. And I feel like a lot of people underestimate the power of their voice along with their peers. And there's something in marketing that I think can be used and just transferred over towards the scientific community, which would be very interesting to see if if we can do it, (laughs) that would be great. And it's what in big companies you call it employee advocacy. And essentially that means if I post something on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook, wherever I'm posting stuff for my company, I get my peers, my colleagues to like it and engage with that post. And then by them liking it and engaging with that post, all of their connections get to see that they like that post. 
And right. over time and consistency, you end up building a bigger audience because people keep seeing that and that company and uh, talking about it. And I think uh, there was this lovely movement that happened, I think 2005, 2000, uh, not sorry, 2015, 2016. I don't know what, what happened to the one there in my head. Uh, it's completely minus that away. A whole decade just disappeared. Anyway, uh, so there was this whole movement where women on Twitter were like, especially female PhDs, realized that the, in the Oxford uh, Dictionary, the term expert had the pronoun he and only he. So uh. only a man could be an expert. And essentially just, you know, having a, a band of women, highly educated women on Twitter, bugging <laughs> the Oxford English Dictionary, they changed their definition mm -hmm. of what an expert is and it, with more inclusive language. So there is power in just 10 of you to create waves. And I think that that's the problem. Everyone thinks it's on them as an individual to be that great influencer. And that's not needed at all because that means like, let's face it, influencers that you see on uh, Instagram, on Facebook, even on Twitter, they spend a lot of time being an influencer. They spend a lot of time of the day trying to, you know, find that great retort, trying to write that perfect post. It takes time, you know, the, the, and the shorter um, the post, the, the longer the time it takes, isn't it? Because you want to make sure your point is very clear mm -hmm. as well. But the point being is that it doesn't have to be just you. It can be 10 of you that consistently like each other's posts, that consistently mm -hmm. engage and that builds momentum. And you, the whole point of marketing that a lot of people forget, and I find a lot of marketers forget as well, is consistency over time. And mm -hmm. uh, like, look, this is a problem in marketing that we're, we're held to this whole like, oh, in, in like one month, I want to see results. That doesn't happen in marketing because mm -hmm. we can't, I can't measure how many times you've seen my, uh, my ad and actually looked at it and considered that in your head. I don't have a link to your brain. I can see how many times it's popped up on your screen. You know, I, I can see if you've clicked on it, I can see, you know, how far you went along to buy a set of shoes, if I'm selling you shoes, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how many times that you thought, hey, I, I like that brand or, oh my God, I hate that brand. Why, why are they after me? What's wrong with my cookie setting? You know, I, I can't mm -hmm. tell that. The, the point is, you know, over time, these things show it's consistency. If you consistently get bugged with a brand, you don't like it. If you consistently see a brand pop up at the right time, or you consistently see posts pop up at the right time, when people are discussing things about climate change, and you see like, you know, five, 10 people talking, you know, sense, so to speak, you go, I'm going to follow them. And might take about, you know, three to four months, might even take a year, because you have a lot of people who are passive listeners on mm -hmm. social media. They, all they are there for is to look at stuff. They don't even like it. And you don't know what they're thinking. They, it, it's almost that you're earning their trust. Mm -hmm. So I can, I can just say band together, have a group of 10 people that consistently like your posts and you like their posts, and then you, you get to share, you get a share of the voice out there in the social media world because it's consistent. 
and it can take uh, a few years. And I think you know this as a podcast host and anybody who's a creator on YouTube or has their own podcast knows that your podcast doesn't go viral with the first podcast. Right. It takes time, it takes consistency and it takes time to build a brand, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And a time to build a presence. And I think that's something that you, know, you can work towards. And like I said, it doesn't have to be all on the individual. It, it can be a community. Yeah, that's and that's a great tip just for individuals. And I think like on social media, before I had real strategies, I would just kind of like post things and and hope it would go viral. And you can like actively ask people. Like like I know there are Facebook groups for people who are like interested in a more environmental friendly lifestyle. And it will be for like bloggers creating content. And the whole thing is like you put a post on that on that page and then uh, somebody has to like like it and comment on it and then you would post your post so the idea is like you're liking and commenting other people's stuff for the same topic to to lift it up just going back to climate change and working with businesses on this issue how like how excited or how um, motivated are businesses to work on this issue? Like, is it something that they're really dragging their feet on and they have to be forced on by government or have things really changed and they're like excited to move towards net zero? So this is, this is kind of interesting because to be honest, like, like I said, I never worked in renewables before this. And a few months before I joined my current company, BP CEO came out with this whole, we have to get to net zero initiative on their own. And what's interesting now is about a year plus later, the Dutch government is forcing Shell, a competitor of BPs, to cut carbon emissions by 43%. And I think you can see that there is, you know, an issue to commit. But there's a lot of interest from a lot of companies, the big companies especially. The problem, as I see it sometimes, is that people get confused between net zero and sustainability. Mm -hmm. And those are two separate things. So sustainability is, can you, can you sustain operations? You know, can you, instead of, it's, it's also, sustainability can also mean, instead of, you know, always promising your shareholders a 5% increase in profit every year, you're saying, hey, we'll just consistently give you 7% profit every year. That's it. But we're not going to necessarily increase it like, you know, 5% over 5% over 5% every year mm -hmm. as well. And sustainability is also some part of, it's about community, you know, investment and things like that. I'm seeing a lot more from my end uh, in terms of venture capital, getting into renewable energy, investing into clean tech, green tech, the smart grid, more people want to explore, you know, electric vehicles, and therefore, you know, better batteries that are environmentally friendly that hold that charge. Because this is a problem that a lot of countries have that they have solar power plants, they have wind farms, they have, you know, enough things to make to make sure their company, sorry, their country is, is constantly running. But then the transfer of this energy over their power lines, it's at some point, it, it, they, they lose about 30% sometimes, depending on where, in which country you are. And if you're losing 30% of the energy you're generating, that's, that's a lot. You know, when you think about it, if you're generating enough, that means, and, but you can't make up for that loss transferring it. So there are lots of different levels to this. And there's one person, again, whose name I've completely forgotten, who said something really interesting on a webinar that I was at. 
And what he said was in the early 2000s, this whole energy transition moving to renewables was something only a few people had gotten on board with. Now it's turned out that a lot of people want to be in this game because right now it's actually profitable to get your feet in as well. Because if, especially if you have wind turbines that run for a long time, you know, that can be maintained for a long time and can generate the amount of energy that's needed for, to run cities and countries and things like that, then yes, it's not expensive anymore to have a wind farm. And the same thing with solar energy or, and the same thing with electric vehicles as well. That, you know, it's, it's right now, it's really, it's, it definitely is very expensive to have a Tesla or another electric vehicle, you know, like, I think we have, we have to like start a YouTube channel and hope that millions and millions of people watch it, then, (laughs) then that's a chance to go and get one of those cars. But that's, again, the price is going down on that. And that's, that's the point when you can actually market to the wider community, you know, to the wider audience, to the whole population then you have a big market share. And I think that's another thing in the UK and especially, I just say in Scandinavia. So I've lived in Scandinavia and most of our energy there is renewable energy. It's, you know, it comes from like, it's, it's hydro powered energy from like, you know, water or it's geothermal, like, especially in Iceland, everything's freaking geothermal (laughs) as well. And it's so easy there. And it's just part of life that that is, that is how it works. And, and that's one level of it. Whereas here in the UK, people are actually asking sometimes, especially millennials, where is my energy coming from? Is it clean energy? Mm-hmm. And this is why the, the UK, I think only about two years ago, had its first ever full day of not relying on coal energy. Oh, wow, and, that's, cool. and that was only a few years back. When you think about it, it's, it's, that's, that's kind of weird. Considering the UK has nuclear power plants, has uh, wind farms, has uh, mm-hmm. solar plants. I, I don't know where the solar plants are because like, as you can see here, it's, cl- it's cloudy and it's cloudy most of the year <laughs> in the UK. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they made the effort <laughs> and, it, and it works. But the, the point being is that, you know, I didn't know that we still had coal plants running. I thought that was, that was a bit weird from, you know, especially moving from Scandinavia. It's like, I haven't seen a coal plant in years. So, and now I've gone into a whole other loop and I don't know where I started, but can you help me here, Steph? I was supposed to make a point. <laughs> you got me off a loop too. I was asking about how willing companies were go to. That was the main question. <laughs> yes. So the point is now a lot of people are, are getting to this and I think it helps that President Biden has actually committed the US to this because, yes. and if we get China on board, that's everybody's going to follow. I think yeah. that's, that's the great part about this, that, you know, the more high power people get on board, the better. And I think that's, that's what BP almost set up in a way, you know, that if a company like BP that, you know, doesn't have the best reputation, to put it lightly, in the world, when it comes to net zero is willing to change strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, that means that they also like, this is real. This means that it's, it's no longer, you know, people who want to uh, scare people into climate compliance or whatever it was right. that uh, a previous president said. I forgot what he said. It was hilarious that cl- what climate change does not exist at all, I think, at some point. Anyway, so there are companies looking to this. Like I said, venture capitalists 
all like heavily investing into this there are so many funds and and especially if uh, you're a woman and you want to start something up there are lots of funds that are looking to fund female founders in the renewable energy space in any space to be honest you know to because the whole point also is that you need that female point of view mm-hmm. as well because the the other side is that when we're talking about renewable energy and the energy transition the people who use energy the most who are the day-to-day users of you know kerosene or whatever it is are women because they're the people cooking they're the people gathering the wood you know especially in rural communities and developing nations and if you leave them out of the equation of the energy transition when planning it they're the ones who are going to suffer and that's a potential 50 percent of the world's population can suffer mm-hmm. because of this. So there are a lot of investment companies out there looking to invest in female founders or teams with, you know, that are diverse as well. They can actually understand the needs better. So th- uh, I, I think it's a promising time. I think in all honesty, we have to do more. It's mm-hmm. not enough. Personally, I don't think it's enough. I, you know, I, I have the same feeling that you know i think uh, that i think greta thunberg really embodies is that urgency you know yes, why aren't we doing something now why are we still focused you know on profits based on money when we could be focused on profits based on co- carbon offsets or carbon neutrality that would be interesting what if we changed our entire way we monetize businesses what if we change the way we did tax breaks instead of you know saying like okay you do this this and this to get your tax break it's like you know if you if you're a company that gets to net zero before 2030 you get x million in tax breaks yeah and that that would really you know push the agenda forward wouldn't it you know so there are so many things we can still be doing i will definitely say it's been better than before and governments also realize that these are viable places to invest in, especially renewable energy, because it's, it's a matter of just retraining people. Very, you know, it's not heavy retraining. You don't have to have a, a degree in, in nuclear energy to maintain a, a wind turbine. You know, and I say nuclear energy because I still don't understand fission and fusion. And this is me from a marketing and filmmaking brain. You know, so don't, don't quiz me on that, please. But, you know, I'm just thinking the hardest thing for me. But it's the point is that you don't need that nowadays to maintain, you know, these turbines. Yes, of course, you need the expertise of engineers. You need the expertise of scientists. But then the people on the ground need adequate training to perform the tasks. And that's all it is. And that's the same as in any energy plant that you need adequate training in order to perform the task safely. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I could talk to you all day about <laughs> foxes and climate change and marketing, but thank you so much. Can you tell everyone where we can find you? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm on LinkedIn. So just search for Lavinia Das. That's L-A-V-A-N-I-Y-A-D-A-S. I have a website that I have not updated in a long time. <laughs> Please ignore that website. If you want to see photos of my dog um, who passed about six years ago, that's the that's the website you have to go to. Well, thank you so much. I'll have to have you back on to talk more about this stuff. Like I said, I'm just so fascinated by marketing and that that is such a great solution to conservation issues. So thanks again. And I hope you have a great day. 
Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. Really appreciate it. Thank you once again, Lavania, for being on the podcast. I had such a great discussion and such a fun time talking to you about such complicated issues. And I think that's the thing that I would really like you to take away from this podcast is that these solutions are not easy. And honestly, although it's really easy to look at corporations as the enemy, we really have to work with them to be part of the solution. Because if we don't, then the consequences are going to be more dire. And that's what we've seen. So keep voting, keep putting pressure on your government to make those changes, to close those loopholes, and keep investing in companies that do good. If you make more money, try to purchase from companies that um, really do some great environmental work, really prioritize going towards uh, carbon neutral or even carbon negative and also eliminate or reduce the amount of plastics that they have are more sustainable. Really try to invest in those types of companies because you can vote not only with your vote, but also your dollar. Thank you guys so much for listening today and I hope you have an amazing day. Remember to be kind to animals because they're awesome and be kind to each other because you're awesome too. Bye. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.